0: My name's Otis Gray and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on patreon.com Linda Ryden, Serena Westfall, Brittany Puttick, Courtney Lemoyne, and Linda Franklin. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of Making the Sleepy podcast. And for anyone who is new to the show, all these amazing names that I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a wonderful site where you can go on and support creators of the work that you like. So if the Sleepy podcast has maybe helped you get a better night's sleep and wake up refreshed the next day, consider going to Patreon.com sleepyradio and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. And at $5 a month, you get access to a special Patreon poetry feed where I send you extra um, exclusive poetry readings every month. And you also get entered into all of our book raffles where I give away the copies of the books that I read on the show. Regardless of how much you donate, I'll read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So, if you'd like to be a part of making this podcast, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lubkowski and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight, we are returning once again to one of my absolute favorite authors, Nathaniel Hawthorne. This is our uh, 117th episode, and I still don't think that there's been an author that has been uh, more consistently perfect to read on this show than Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's like his words were put on the page, knowing that 100 years later they'd be read out loud. It really is glorious writing. So... I took out another book of his short stories, a collection, and uh, tonight I'm going to be reading a wonderful little tale called The Great Carbuncle. If I'm being honest, I uh, definitely picked that title because Carbuncle is such a fantastic word and I had no idea what it meant. And turns out to be this really lovely little metaphorical story, kind of a, a full circle life lesson, and it was a real pleasure to read. So tonight, The Great Carbuncle, a short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed, get real comfortable, close your eyes, and let me read to you. The Great Carbuncle, A Mystery of the White Mountains At nightfall, once in the olden time, on the rugged side of one of the crystal hills, a party of adventurers were refreshing themselves after a toilsome and fruitless quest for the Great Carbuncle. They had come thither, not as friends or partners, in the enterprise but each save one youthful pair impelled by his own selfish and solitary longing for this wondrous gem their feeling of brotherhood however was strong enough to induce them to contribute a mutual aid in building a rude hut of branches and kindling a great fire of shattered pines that had drifted down the headlong current of the Amansuk on the lower bank of which they were to pass the night. There was but one of their number, perhaps, who had become so estranged from natural sympathies by the absorbing spell of the pursuit as to acknowledge no satisfaction at the sight of human faces in the remote and solitary region whither they had ascended. A vast extent of wilderness lay between them and the nearest settlement, while a scant mile above their heads was that black verge where the hills throw off their shaggy mantle of forest trees and either robe themselves in clouds or towered naked into the sky. The roar of the Amunso would have been too awful for endurance if only a solitary man had listened. the mountain stream talked with the wind. The adventurers, therefore, exchanged hospitable greetings and welcomed one another to the hut, where each man was the host and all were the guests of the whole company. They spread their individual supplies of food on the flat surface of a rock and partook of a general repast, at the close of which a sentiment of good fellowship was perceptible among the party, though repressed by the idea that the renewed search for the great carbuncle must make them strangers again in the morning. Seven men and one young woman, they warmed themselves together at the fire, which extended its bright wall along the whole front of their wigwam. As they observed the various and contrasted figures that made up the assemblage, each man looking like a character of himself in the unsteady light that flickered over him, they came mutually to the conclusion that an otter society had never met in city or wilderness, on mountain or plain. The eldest of the group. A tall, lean, weather-beaten man, some sixty years of age, was clad in the skins of wild animals, whose fashions of dress he did well to imitate, since the deer, the wolf, and the bear had long been his most intimate companions. He was one of those ill-fated mortals, such as the Indians told of whom in their early youth the gray carbuncles smote with a peculiar madness and became the passionate dream of their existence. All who visited that region knew him as the seeker and by no other name. As none could remember when he first took up the search, there went a fable in the valley of the Seiko, that for his inordinate lust after the great carbuncle, he had been condemned to wander among the mountains till the end of time, still with the same feverish hopes at sunrise, the same despair at eve. Near this miserable seeker sat a little elderly personage, wearing a high-crowned hat, shaped somewhat, like a crucible. He was from beyond the sea, a doctor, a who had wilted and dried himself into a mummy by continually stooping over charcoal furnaces and inhaling unwholesome fumes during his researches in chemistry and alchemy. It was told of him, whether truly or not, that At the commencement of his studies, he had drained his body of all its richest blood and wasted it with other inestimable ingredients in an unsuccessful experiment and had never been a well man since. Another of the adventurers was Master Ichabod Pigsnore, a weighty merchant and selectman of Boston and an elder of the famous Mr. Norton's Church. His enemies had a ridiculous story. The master pigstor was accustomed to spend a whole hour after prayer time, every morning and evening, and wallowing naked among an immense quantity of pine tree shillings, which were the earliest silver coinage of Massachusetts. The fourth, whom we shall notice, had no name that his companions knew of and was chiefly distinguished by a sneer that always contorted his thin visage and by a prodigious pair of spectacles which were supposed to deform and discolor the whole face of nature to this gentleman's perception. The fifth adventurer likewise lacked a name which was the greater pity, as he appeared to be a poet. He was a bright-eyed man, but woefully pined away, which was no more than natural, if, as some people affirm, his ordinary diet was fog, morning mist, and a slice of the densest cloud within his reach, sauced with moonshine whenever he could get it. Certain it is that the poetry which flowed from him had a smack of all these dainties. The sixth of the party was a young man, of haughty mien, and sat somewhat apart from the rest, wearing his plumed hat loftily among his elders, while the fire glittered on the rich embroidery of his dress and gleamed intensely on the jeweled pommel of his sword. This was the Lord de Bear, who, when at home, was said to spend much of his time in the burial vault of his dead progenitors, rummaging their moldy coffins in search of all the earthly pride and vainglory that was hidden among bones and dust. So that, besides his own share, he had the collective haughtiness of his whole line of ancestry, Lastly, there was a handsome youth in rustic garb and by his side a blooming little person in whom a delicate shade of maiden reserve was just melting into the rich glow of a young wife's affection. Her name was Hannah and her husband's Matthew, two homely names yet well enough adapted to the simple pair. Who seemed strangely out of place among the whimsical fraternity whose wits had been set agog by the great carbuncle. Beneath the shelter of one hut and the bright blaze of the same fire sat this varied group of adventurers, all so intent upon a single object, that of whatever else they began to speak their closing words were sure to be illuminated with the great carbuncle. Several related the circumstances that brought them thither. One had listened to a traveler's tale of this marvelous stone in his own distant country, and had immediately been seized with such a thirst for beholding it as could only be quenched in its intensest luster. Another, so long ago, as when the famous Captain Smith visited these coasts, had seen it blazing far at sea, and had felt no rest in all the intervening years till now that he took up the search. A third, being encamped on a hunting expedition, full forty miles south of the White Mountains, awoke at midnight and beheld the great carbuncle gleaming like a meteor, so that the shadows of the trees fell backward from it. They spoke of the innumerable attempts which had been made to reach the spot, and of the singular fatality which had hitherto withheld success from all adventurers, though it might seem so easy to follow its source, a light that overpowered the moon. And almost matched the sun. It was observable that each smiled scornfully at the madness of every other in anticipating better fortune than the past, yet nourished a scarcely hidden conviction that he would himself be the favored one. As if to allay their two sanguine hopes. They recurred to the Indian traditions that a spirit kept watch about the gem and bewildered those who sought it either by removing it from peak to peak of the higher hills or by calling up a mist from the enchanted lake over which it hung. But these tales were deemed unworthy of credit all professing to believe that the search had been baffled by want of sagacity or perseverance in the adventurers or such other causes as might naturally obstruct the passage to any given point among the intricacies of forest, valley, and mountain. In a pause of the conversation, the wearer of the prodigious spectacles looked round upon the party making each individual, in turn, the object of a sneer, which invariably dwelt upon his countenance. So, fellow pilgrims, said he, here we are, seven wise men and one fair damsel, who, doubtless, is as wise as any grey beard of the company. Here we are. I say, all bound in the same goodly enterprise. Methinks now, if it were not amiss that each of us declare what he proposes to do with the great carbuncle, provided he have the good hap to clutch it. What says our friend in the bearskin? How mean you, good sir, to enjoy the prize which you have been seeking, The Lord knows how long among the crystal hills. How enjoy it, exclaimed the aged seeker bitterly. I hope for no enjoyment from it. That folly has passed long ago. I keep up the search for this accursed stone because the vain ambition of my youth has become a fate upon me in old age. The pursuit alone is my strength, the energy of my soul, the warmth of my blood, and the pith and marrow of my bones. Were I to turn my back upon it, I should fall down dead on the hither side of the notch, which is the gateway of this mountain region. Yet not to have my wasted lifetime back again, but I give up my hopes of the great carbuncle. Having found it, I shall bear it to a certain cavern that I waddle, and there, grasping it in my arms, lie down and die, and keep it buried with me forever. Oh, wretch, regardless of the interests of science, cried Doctor or with philosophic indignation thou art not worthy to behold even from afar off the luster of this most precious gem that ever was concocted in the laboratory of nature mine is the sole purpose for which a wise man may desire the possession of the great carbuncle immediately on obtaining it for I have a presentiment good people, that the prize is reserved to crown my scientific reputation, I shall return to Europe, and employ my remaining years in reducing it to its first elements, a portion of the stone will I grind to impalpable powder, other parts shall be dissolved in acids, or whatever solvents will act upon so admirable a composition and the remainder I design to melt in a crucible or set on fire with the blowpipe. By these various methods, I shall gain an accurate analysis and finally bestow the result of my labors upon the world in a folio volume. Excellent, quoth the man with the spectacles. Nor need you hesitate, learned sir, on account of the necessary destruction of the gem, since the perusal of your folio may teach every mother's son of us to concoct a great carbuncle of his own. But verily, said Master Ichabod Pigsnort, for mine own part, I object to the making of these counterfeits as being calculated to reduce the marketable value of the true gem. I tell ye frankly, sirs, I have an interest in keeping up the price. Here have I quitted my regular traffic, leaving my warehouse in the care of my clerks and putting my credit to great hazard, and furthermore, have put myself in peril of death or captivity, and all this without daring to ask the prayers of the congregation, because the quest for the great carbuncle is deemed little better than a traffic with the evil one. Now think ye that I would have done this grievous thing, wrong to my soul, body, reputation, and estate, without a reasonable chance of profit. Not I, Master Pigsnore, said the man with his spectacles. I never laid such a great folly on thy charge. I truly hope not, said the merchant. Now, as touching this great carbuncle, I am free to own that I have never had a glimpse of it. But be it only the hundredth part so bright as people tell, it will surely outvalue the great mogul's best diamond, which he holds at an incalculable sum. Wherefore, I am minded to put the great carbuncle on shipboard, and voyage with it to England, France, Spain, Italy, or into heathendom, if Providence should send me thither, and in a word dispose of the gem to the best bidder among the potentates of the earth, that he may place in it his own crown jewels. If any of ye have a wiser plan, let him expound it, That have I, thou sordid man, exclaimed the poet. Dost thou desire nothing brighter than gold, that thou would transmute all this ethereal luster into such dross as thou wallowest in already? For myself, hiding the jewel under my cloak, I shall hie me back to the attic chamber, in one of the darksome alleys of London. There... Day and night, I will gaze upon it. My soul shall drink its radiance. It shall be diffused throughout my intellectual powers and gleam brightly in every line of poesy that I indite. Thus, long ages after I am gone, the splendor of the great carbuncle will blaze around my name. Well said, master poet cried he of the spectacles. Hide it under thy cloak, sayest thou. Why it will gleam through the holes and make thee look like a jack-o'-lantern. To think ejaculated the Lord de Air rather to himself than his companions, the best of whom he held utterly unworthy of his intercourse. To think that a fellow in a tattered cloak should talk of conveying the great carbuncle to a garret in Grub Street. Have not I resolved within myself that the whole earth contains no fitter or ornament for the great hall of my ancestral castle? There shall it flame for ages, making a noonday of midnight, glittering on the suits of armor. The banners, the escutcheons, that hang around the wall, And keeping bright the memory of heroes. Wherefore have all other adventurers sought the prize in vain, But that I might win it, and make it a symbol of the glories of our lofty line. And never, on the diadem of the white mountains, Did the great carbuncle hold a place half so honored, as is reserved for you in the Hall of the Deverus. It is a noble thought, said the cynic, with an obsequious sneer. Yet, yeah, might I presume to say so, the gem would make a rare sepulchral lamp, and would display the glories of your lordship's progenitors, more truly in the ancestral ball than in the castle hall. Nay, forsooth, observe Matthew, the young Rustic, who sat hand in hand with his bride. The gentleman has bethought himself of a profitable use for this bright stone. Hannah here and I are seeking it for a like purpose. How, fellow, exclaimed his lordship in surprise, what castle hall hast thou to hang it in? No castle, replied Matthew, but as neat a cottage as any within sight of the Crystal Hills. You must know, friends, that Hannah and I, being wedded last week, have taken up the search of the Great Carbuncle, because we shall need its light in the long winter evenings, and it will be such a pretty thing to show the neighbors when they visit us. It will shine through the house so that we may pick up a pin in any corner and will set all the windows aglowing as if there were a great fire of pine nuts in the chimney. And then how pleasant, when we awake in the night, to be able to see one another's faces. There was a general smile among the adventurers at the simplicity of the young couple's project in regard to this wondrous and invaluable stone, with which the greatest monarch on earth might have been proud to adorn his palace. Especially the man with spectacles, who had sneered at all the company in turn, now twisted his visage into such an expression of ill-natured mirth, that Matthew asked him, rather peevishly, what he himself meant to do with the great carbuncle. The great carbuncle, answered the cynic with ineffable scorn. Why, you blockhead, there is no such thing in Rerum Natura. I have come three thousand miles and am resolved to set my foot on every peak of these mountains and poke my head into every chasm. For the sole purpose of demonstrating to the satisfaction of any man, one whit less an ass than thyself, that the great carbuncle is all a humbug. Vain and foolish were the motives that had brought most of the adventurers to the Crystal Hills, but none so vain, so foolish, and so impious, too, as that of the scoffer with the prodigious spectacles. He was one of those wretched and evil men whose yearnings are downward to the darkness instead of heavenward, and who, could they but extinguish the lights which God hath kindled for us, would count the midnight gloom their chiefest glory. As the cynic spoke, several of the party were startled by a gleam of red splendor, that showed the huge shapes of the surrounding mountains and the rock bestrewn bed of the turbulent rivers with an illumination unlike that of their fire on the trunks and black boughs of the forest trees. They listened for the roll of thunder but heard nothing and were glad that the tempest came not near them. The stars Those dial points of heaven now warn the adventurers to close their eyes on the blazing logs and open them, in dreams, to the glow of the great carbuncle. The young married couple had taken their lodgings in the farthest corner of the wigwam and were separated from the rest of the party by a curtain of curiously woven twigs such as might have hung in deep festoons around the bridal bower of Eve. The modest little wife had wrought this piece of tapestry while the other guests were talking. She and her husband fell asleep with hands tenderly clasped and awoke from visions of unearthly radiance and me to more blessed light of one another's eyes. They awoke at the same instant and with one happy smile beaming over their two faces which grew brighter with their consciousness of the reality of life and love. But no sooner did she recollect where they were than the bride peeped through the interstices of the leafy curtain and saw that the outer room of the hut was deserted. Up, dear Matthew, cried she in haste, the strange folk are all gone, up this very minute or we shall lose the great carbuncle. In truth, so little did these poor young people deserve the mighty prize which had lured them thither, that they had slept peacefully all night until the summits of the hills were glittering with sunshine while the other adventurers had tossed their limbs in feverish wakefulness or dreamed of climbing precipices and set off to realize their dreams with the earliest peep of dawn. But Matthew and Hannah, after their calm rest, were as light as two young deer and merely stopped to say their prayers and washed themselves in a cold pool of the Amunsar and then to taste a morsel of food ere they turned their faces to the mountainside. It was a sweet emblem of conjugal affection as they toiled up the difficult descent, gathering strength from the mutual aid which they afforded. After several little accidents, such as a torn robe, a lost shoe, and the entanglement of Hannah's hair in a bow, they reached the upper verge of the forest and were now to pursue a more adventurous course. The innumerable trunks and heavy foliage of the trees had hitherto shut in their thoughts, which now shrank affrighted from the region of wind and cloud and naked rocks and desolate sunshine that rose immeasurably above them. they gazed back at the obscure wilderness which they had traversed and longed to be buried again in its depths rather than trust themselves to so vast and visible a solitude. Shall we go on, said Matthew, throwing his arm round Hannah's waist, both to protect her and to comfort his heart by drawing her close to it. But the little bride, simple as she was, had a woman's love of jewels and could not forego the hope of possessing the very brightest in the world in spite of the perils with which it must be won. Let us climb a little higher, whispered she, yet tremulously, as she turned her face upward to the lonely sky. Come then, said Matthew, mustering his manly courage and drawing her along with him, where she became timid again the moment that he grew bold. And upward accordingly went the pilgrims of the great carbuncle, now treading upon the tops and thickly interwoven branches of dwarf pines, which, by the growth of centuries, though mossy with age, had barely reached three feet in altitude. Next, they came to masses and fragments of naked rock, heaped confusedly together, like a cairn reared by giants in memory of a giant sheep. In this bleak realm of upper air, nothing breathed, nothing grew. There was no life but what was concentrated in their two hearts. They had climbed so high that nature herself seemed no longer to keep them company. She lingered beneath them within the verge of the forest trees and set a farewell glance after her children as they strayed where her own green footprints had never been. But soon, They were to be hidden from her eye. Densely and dark, the mist began to gather below, casting black spots of shadow on the vast landscape and sailing heavily to one center, as if the loftiest mountain peak had summoned a council of its kindred clouds. Finally, the vapors welled in themselves, as it were, into a mass, presenting the appearance of a pavement over which the wanderers might have trodden, but where they would vainly have sought an avenue to the blessed earth which they had lost. And the lovers yearned to behold that green earth again, more intensely, alas, than beneath the clouded sky they had ever desired a glimpse of heaven. They even felt it a relief to their desolation when the mists, creeping gradually up the mountain, concealed its lonely peak and thus annihilated, at least for them, the whole region of visible space. But they drew closer together with a fond and melancholy gaze dreading lest the universal cloud should snatch them from each other's sight. Still, perhaps, they would have been resolute to climb as far and as high between earth and heaven as they could find foothold, if Hannah's strength had not begun to fail, and with that her courage also. Her breath grew short. She refused to burden her husband with her weight, but often tottered against his side and recovered herself each time by a feebler effort. Alas, she sank down on one of the rocky steps of the acclivity. We are lost, dear Matthew, said she mournfully. We shall never find our way to the earth again. And oh, how happy we might have been in our cottage. Dear heart, we will yet be happy there, answered Matthew. Look. In this direction the sunshine penetrates the dismal mist. By its aid, I can direct our course to the passage of the notch. Let us go back, love, and dream no more of the great carbuncle. The sun cannot be yonder, said Hannah with despondence. By this time it must be noon. If there could ever be any sunshine here... It would come from above our heads. But look, repeated Matthew, in a somewhat altered tone, it is brightening every moment. If not sunshine, what can it be? Nor could the young bride any longer deny that a radiance was breaking through the mist and changing its dim hue to a dusky red, which continually grew more vivid as if brilliant particles were interfused with the gloom. Now also, the cloud began to roll away from the mountain, while as it heavenly withdrew, one object after another started out of its impenetrable obscurity into sight, and precisely the effect of a new creation, before the indistinctness of the old chaos had been completely swallowed up. As the process went on, they saw the gleaming of water close at their feet and found themselves on the very border of a mountain lake, deep, bright, clear, and calmly beautiful, spreading from brim to brim of a basin that had been scooped out of the solid rock. A ray of glory flashed across its surface. The pilgrims looked whence it should proceed, but closed their eyes with a thrill of awful admiration to exclude the fervid splendor that glowed from the brow of a cliff impending over the enchanted lake. For the simple pair had reached that lake of mystery and found the long-sought shrine of the great carbuncle they threw their arms around each other and trembled at their own success. For as the legends of this wondrous gem rushed thick upon their memory, they felt themselves marked out by fate and the consciousness was fearful. Often from childhood upward, they had seen it shining like a distant star, and now that star was throwing its intensest luster on their hearts. They seemed changed to one another's eyes in the red brilliancy that flamed upon their cheeks while it lent the same fire to the lake, the rocks, and sky, and to the mist which had rolled back before its power. But with their next glance, they beheld an object that drew their attention even from the mighty stone. At the base of the cliff, directly beneath the great carbuncle, appeared the figure of a man with his arms extending in the act of climbing, and his face turned upward as if to drink the full gush of splendor. But he stirred not, no more than if changed to marble. It is the seeker, whispered Hannah. Hannah convulsively grasping her husband's arm. Matthew, he is dead. The joy of success has killed him, replied Matthew, trembling violently. Or perhaps the very light of the great carbuncle was death. The great carbuncle cried a peevish voice behind them. The great humbug. If you have found it, point pointed out to me. They turned their heads, and there was the cynic, with his prodigious spectacles set carefully on his nose, staring now at the lake, now at the rocks, now at the distant masses of vapor, now right at the great carbuncle itself. Yet it seemingly as unconscious of its light, as if all the scattered clouds were condensed about his person. Though its radiance actually threw the shadow of the unbeliever at his own feet as he turned his back upon the glorious jewel, he would not be convinced that there was the least glimmer there. Where is your great humbug? he repeated. I challenge you to make me see it. There, said Matthew, incensed at such a perverse blindness and turning the cynic round towards the illuminated cliff. Take off those abominable spectacles when you cannot help seeing it. Now these colored spectacles probably darken the cynic's sight at least as great a degree as the smoked glasses through which people gaze at an eclipse With resolute bravado, however, he snatched them from his nose and fixed a bold stare full upon the ruddy blaze of the great carbuncle. But scarcely had he encountered it when, with a deep, shuddering groan, he dropped his head and pressed both hands across his miserable eyes. Thenceforth there was, in very truth, no light of the great carbuncle, nor any other light on earth, nor light of heaven itself, for the poor sinner. So long accustomed to view all objects through a medium that deprived them of every glimpse of brightness, a single flash of so glorious a phenomena striking upon his naked vision had blinded him forever. Matthew, said Hannah, clinging to him, let us go hence. Matthew saw that she was faint and kneeling down, supported her in his arms while he threw some of the thrillingly cold water of the enchanted lake upon her face and bosom. It revived her, but could not renovate her courage. Yes, dearest, cried Matthew, pressing her tremulous form to his breast. We will go hence and return to our humble cottage. The blessed sunshine and the quiet moonlight shall come through our window. We will kindle the cheerful glow of our hearth at event time and be happy in its light. Never again will we desire more light than all the world may share with us. No, said his bride, for how could we live by day or sleep by night in this awful blaze of the great carbuncle? Out of the hollow of their hands they drank each a draft from the lake which resented them its waters uncontaminated by the unearthly lip. Then, lending their guidance to the blinded cynic, who uttered not a word, and even stifled his groans in his own most wretched heart, they began to descend the mountain. Yet, as they left the shore, till then, untrodden, of the spirit's lake, they threw a farewell glance towards the cliff, and beheld the vapors gathering in dense volumes, through which the gem burned duskily. As touching the other pilgrims of the Great Carbuncle, the legend goes on to tell that the worshipful Master Ichabod Pixnor soon gave up the quest as a desperate speculation and wisely resolved to betake himself again to his warehouse near the town dock in Boston. But as he passed through the notch of the mountains, a war party of Indians captured our unlucky merchant and carried him to Montreal, there holding him in bondage, till, by the payment of a heavy ransom, he had woefully subtracted from his hoard of pine tree shillings. By his long absence, moreover, his affairs had become so disordered that for the rest of his life, Instead of wallowing in silver, he had seldom a sixpence worth of copper. Dr. Caiaphado, the alchemist, returned to his laboratory with a prodigious fragment of granite, which he ground to powder, dissolved in acids, melted in the crucible, and burned with the blowpipe, and published the results of his experiment in one of the heaviest folios of the day. And for all these purposes, the gem itself could not have answered better than the granite. The poet, by a somewhat similar mistake, made prize of a great piece of ice, which he found in a sunless chasm of the mountains, and swore that it corresponded in all points with the idea of the Great Carbuncle. The critics say that if his poetry lacked the splendor of the gem, it retained all the coldness of the ice. The Lord de Vere went back to his ancestral hall, where he contented himself with a wax-lighted chandelier and filled in due course of time another coffin in the ancestral vault. As the funeral torches gleamed within the dark receptacle, there is no need of the great carbuncle to show the vanity of earthly plump. The cynic, having cast aside his spectacles, wandered about the world, a miserable object, and was punished with an agonizing desire of light for the willful blindness of his former life. The whole night long, he would lift his splendor-blasted orbs to the moon and stars. He turned his face eastward at sunrise as duly a Persian idolater. He made a pilgrimage to Rome to witness the magnificent illumination of St. Peter's Church and finally perished in the great fire of London into the midst of which he had thrust himself with the desperate idea catching one feeble ray from the blaze that was kindling earth and heaven. Matthew and his bride spent many peaceful years and were fond of telling the legend of the great carbuncle. The tale, however, towards the close of their lengthened lives, did not meet with the full credence that had been accorded to it by those who remember the ancient luster of the gem. For it is affirmed that from the hour when two mortals had shown themselves so simply wise as to reject the jewel which would have dimmed all earthly things its splendor waned. When other pilgrims reached the cliff they found only an opaque stone with particles of mica glittering on its surface. There is also a tradition that As the youthful pair departed, the gem was loosened from the forehead of the cliff and fell into the enchanted lake, and that, at noontide, the seeker's form may still be seen to bend over its quenchless gleam. Some few believe that this inestimable stone is blazing as of old, and say that they have caught its radiance, like a flash of summer lightning far down the valley of the Seiko. And be it owned that, many a mile from the crystal hills, I saw a wondrous light around their summits and was lured by great faith of poesy to be the latest pilgrim of the great Carbuncle. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.